guys are kind of quiet this morning, a little bit quiet. Hey, it's good to see you guys. I want to uh, echo what Pastor Jeff said, that if you are uh, visiting with us today, we're awfully glad that you're here. And if you come regularly, we like you too, and we're glad that you're here. But, uh, you know, every, we're, everybody's in such different seasons. You know, there may be some of you here right now that are just in a season of rest and rejoicing in your life. You're in the right place because no better place to do that than with the body of Christ. And you may be in a, a very different season in your life right now, a season of trial or, or burden. Uh, and as well, you're in the right place. There's no better place to be when you're in that kind of a season than uh, with the body of Christ and with brothers and sisters in the Lord who love you uh, and with the Lord who wants to speak into your life this morning. And that's what we believe uh, happens each and every time we gather, that the Lord supernaturally speaks to us through his word uh, and just gives us that manna that we need uh, for the day and that great encouragement. So uh, with that said, I'm going to dismiss the kids. So elementary kids, preschool through fifth grade, you guys are headed out with teacher Diane, it looks like, and uh, youth group. So middle school, high school, uh, you guys are headed out with Don Jay, which I love because that means I have extra time this morning. <laughs> go pretty much as long as I want to go. God bless you guys. <laughs> Get out in Jesus' name. So if you, uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, you should have one. You can use one on your phone. That's great. You can use uh, one that you brought. And if you didn't bring one and you'd like a, a hard copy one, we have them that you can borrow. So just raise your hands. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. Uh, we're working on getting some large print Bibles. So I imagine the number of people who want them is going to go way up once we get those. But if you need a Bible, just raise your hands and some of the guys will get them for you. Uh, we're going to be, you know, we're, we're uh, rocketing right through the book of Mark, right, once again this morning. And we're going to look today at just the last seven verses of chapter seven. And I do realize the irony here as we've been working our way through Mark's gospel, which is by far the fastest moving of the four accounts of the life of Jesus, and yet we are moving so slowly, I know, as we go through it. And yet I just feel like each passage is just so packed with really these deep, rich insights into the heart of our Savior, and I think such rich application for our lives. And, and I really believe, I'm excited, I think today's text is going to be no different uh, than that. I think the Lord has a lot here for us uh, today. So let's pray and just ask him to continue to bless uh, our time together. So Father, we thank you so much again just for this opportunity, this place that you have provided for us to come together, Lord. We thank you for the ability that we have, Lord, to study your word, the freedom that you've provided here for us to do that. And we pray, Lord, as we do each and every time we open the Bible, Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher, Lord, that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be what's manifest here this morning, Lord. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord, corporately, Lord, collectively, as well as individually, Lord, and personally. And we thank you, Lord, and we pray for that now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Now, if you read ahead, right, like, like all of the really smart folks do, right? If you read ahead 
you are probably just a bit puzzled about what it is that you read, because we're going to see as we go through that in our text this morning, Jesus just doesn't do things the way that we would expect him to do them. And we're left with some questions about why he did what he did and really why he did it the way that we're going to see him do it. And all of those things actually are part of the point of this whole passage itself. And I think this text really helps us to, to kind of embrace this idea that we need to expect the unexpected from Jesus. And you remember when we left off just last time, we left Jesus and the boys way up in what is now modern-day Lebanon. They had left Israel completely and gone up, in, up to Tyre, right about 50 miles north, deep, deep up into what was Gentile territory. And we watched that wonderful story as Jesus delivered the, that demon-possessed daughter of the Syrophoenician woman, but only after he had really taken the time uh, really to, to draw out kind of the, the beauty and the strength of that one mother's great faith. You know, and then once that one single divine appointment was complete there, we pick up next in verse 31 of Mark chapter 7 for this morning. It says, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Now, this seems to make sense the way we read it here. Here's Jesus just simply coming back down to the area on that eastern side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And yet, when we read it the way it was actually written, when we read it in the original language, it doesn't seem to make much sense at all, because what the text actually says is that then Jesus left the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. And it doesn't make sense, because when we glance at a map, what we find is that Jesus went due north just to go south. Right? He went 22 miles to the north, right? That would have been at least an eight-hour full day's walk to the north for no reason, just so he could then sort of circle back around and then head back down toward the south, kind of in this little almost an arc to get to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, some Bible historians would suggest, according to the chronology, that this could have been a trip which may have even taken as much as a few months Right now, we actually have no record at all of anything at all that happened there in Sidon, let alone on this kind of milk route that Jesus chooses, right? And, and those facts together have led some translators to conclude that the text is wrong. And so what they do is they just sort of combine Tyre and Sidon, right, like Mountain View in San Francisco, right, as if to say it's one location and that Jesus just kind of, they make it read like he just made his way from there. And yet surely the text is correct the way that it stands. And what happened here is that Jesus went out of his way, on his way, and he did it for a very good reason. And I believe that the reason was because this is the calm before the storm. 
We've noted as we've gone through that we are now a year, less than a year from the cross. And Jesus is trying to redeem the time and buy up these opportunities to minister to his guys, really to pour into them everything they needed to know and to continue to reveal himself to them in ways that he only could while they were away from all the crowds. Like, for example, if they happened to be walking along through Gentile territory for days and days on end. And what we're going to see, interestingly, it's the very next chapter that Peter's going to make kind of that great, you know, that discovery, right, that great declaration that he makes in Mark chapter 8. Jesus asks the disciples, he says, you know, who do men say that I am? And it says that they answered John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And then it's Matthew who gives us kind of Jesus' response to that, where it says that Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so I believe that it may well be that it was on this long kind of lonely time together that this impression that Peter had really started to become a reality in his heart, which would lead him to be able to make that declaration. So the point here is that the disciples needed this long time alone with Jesus before what he knew was going to be a time of incredible testing that was coming for them. And of course, the truth for us is that we need exactly that same kind of time alone with Jesus in the very same way. So very first, as we try to unexpect or expect the unexpected from Jesus, we need to know that Jesus doesn't always take the most direct route, right? So often we think we know exactly where we're headed with the Lord, right? We, we're at point A, and we know precisely how to get to point B. B, and yet we're reminded as we look at those maps that really the best way from point A to point B when you're walking with Jesus is not always a straight line. You know, maybe you're somewhere kind of off of the path that you thought that you'd be on, right? You're at a point in your life where you seem to be headed due north, where you know that you're supposed to be going south. And you're at a point where this road is long and it's hot and it's dusty up there in Lebanon. And all you want to do is get back down to the Galilee, right, where it's beautiful. But here's what I want to encourage all of us with this morning. As best as we can... We just need to enjoy the walk right? because it's during these times, there are things that we are learning from the Lord and things that we're learning about the Lord during this time, right? Th those flesh and blood can't reveal it to us kind of things, right? They are going to be so very important in the very near future in our lives because this long road that you seem to be on, I don't want to Say it. But this could be kind of that calm before a storm that you're not expecting, but Jesus knows is coming. So just enjoy the walk, even if it starts to take you kind of in an unexpected way, and even if you then end up in what was kind of an unexpected place. Because notice here that instead of arriving back at Capernaum on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, remember that was kind of the headquarters for their ministry, here these guys go through and they end up, what's it say, in the Decapolis. 
And those were those 10 Greek cities on the east side of the sea. This is that area we've seen before where remember that two and a half of the tribes had settled just outside of the promised land on that side of the sea, and they'd been overrun by Gentiles. So there are these 10 cities, right? These 10 cities that were greatly influenced by Greek culture. And this whole area was kind of considered a Rome away from Rome, right? And yet this is where Jesus heads. Now possibly he wanted to kind of avoid some of those crowds that were waiting for him back in Israel. Certainly trying to still avoid the hostile Jewish religious leaders who were there at the ready. And yet what we see is that his popularity and his reputation had preceded him there. And as soon as he gets there, it's Matthew that tells us that great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Now remember... And Jesus kind of had a forerunner in this area. Remember that demoniac man that he had healed back in chapter 5. And the, remember how the demoniac man wanted to go along with him, and what did Jesus say? He sent him back saying, I want you to what? Go home to your friends, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. It says the man departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. So by this time, as Jesus gets back to this area, everybody recognizes him, and they flock to him. And what's interesting is that Matthew kind of paints what is kind of a, this familiar scene. He just sort of paints it with this broad brush. But Mark, we're going to see this morning, he's really going to zero in, and he's going to highlight on the healing of just one single individual. And I believe that he does that because this was an event initially that it had a deep impact first upon Peter. And then we know Mark was a disciple of Peter and no doubt as Peter told this to Mark and then probably retold it again and again over the years, this was now an event that really deeply impacted Mark as well. And when he sat down to put pen to papyrus, as it were, and write down this account, the Holy Spirit brought this to remembrance and saw fit to have it included so that we could learn from it today. And I think we're going to see there's, it's a wonderful interaction with some beautiful encouragement. So we read that in the midst of this multitude, look at verse 32, it says, then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech and they begged him to put his hand on him. Again, in the midst of this multitude of people, right, thousands of people probably, Mark focuses in on this one man who was brought here to Jesus, no doubt by his friends. This man who couldn't hear, he couldn't speak, right, completely cut off from the world, likely had no idea at all who Jesus was, right? He hadn't heard the stories because what? He couldn't hear the stories. And so he has this group of faithful friends like we've seen before bringing him to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we just want you to what? Put your hands on him because they were sure that that would be the way that he would be healed. 
Right? They'd heard about Jesus simply laying hands on people and then them being miraculously healed as a result. And so they're already coming, notice, with this kind of a preconceived idea about Jesus here, about how he should perform or would perform or could perform the healing that they wanted for this deaf and mute man. And yet, as we are going to see, Jesus doesn't do at all what they expect him to do. And in many ways, he's going to greatly exceed what it was that they expected of him. Because we read next, look at just the beginning of verse 33. Instead of laying hands on him, the first thing it does, it says there at the beginning of verse 33, that he took him aside from the multitude. Now, how exactly do you take one man aside from the midst of a multitude? Right? Well, I'm not sure. But the language kind of implies that the idea here is that Jesus took him aside unto himself. Now, he may have moved him physically kind of to the side, away from the people a little bit. But the important point, I think, here is that Jesus wanted to just get away enough so that he could stand face to face with this man and that they could look clearly into each other's eyes. And I think that what this tells us is so important is that Jesus sees each and every person as a person, right? So the, the first unexpected thing that we can expect from Jesus, right, is that he always takes time to really see every person. Think about this man, his whole life. No doubt he is well known throughout the region, but what's he well known for? He's well known for his disability. He's just a person who's kind of known for the accumulation of all of his physical deficits, right? That's how everybody saw him. They just saw him as the deaf man or as the, the mute man. But in the eyes of Jesus, he wasn't supremely a deaf man. He wasn't supremely a mute man. He was a man. This was a person. What Jesus saw was that there was a person behind those disabilities and there's a person behind those labels there's the behind those labels that people place on other people and and I think we can all fall into the trap even as Christians of categorizing someone based solely on whatever it is that their particular struggle is or their particular limitation is right but Jesus never ever does that Jesus looks at every person and he, what he sees is he sees the person who's trapped inside of those limitations. Whether they're trapped, whether they're dealing with, with depression or bipolar or, or any one of these other kind of mental health kinds of issues, or, or they're limited by some kind of a physical issue or a, a condition or a, a sickness, when Jesus looks into your eyes, he sees you. He doesn't see your struggle. He doesn't see your limitation. And what he wants first and foremost is to draw you aside unto himself. And not only so that he can see you, but what? So that you can see him. Right? I have never looked into the eyes of Jesus the way that this man has looked into the eyes of Jesus. Someday I will. Right? Someday we all will who know him. But I can only imagine the kind of 
peace that just that look brought to his soul at that moment. The way that just the eyes of Jesus, they were medicine for this man's hurting heart. And I, and I believe that this is where the healing always begins. Right? This is where the healing always begins for us. Right, When we come spiritually, if you will, face to face with Jesus, he sees us for who we are and we start to see him for exactly who he is. So Jesus takes this man unto himself. Jesus sees him. He sees Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. But what Jesus does next are some baffling things. Right? Look at verse 33 again. He took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Now, before we go much further, I'll tell you, as you can imagine, there has been no shortage of discussion for the last 2,000 years about exactly what it was that Jesus was doing here, right? Did he put his fingers in the man's ears or to the man's ears? Did he spit on the man's tongue? Or did he spit on his own finger then with which he touched the man's tongue? Did he spit on the ground and then touch the man's tongue with his finger? And, and trust me, there are as many different opinions as you can imagine. There are some who would point out, and, and rightly so, that in the ancient world, they actually believed that them, there was some sort of a medicinal quality to our spit. And they would list all the different examples from ancient writings where this was documented, right? Historians would explain that this was certainly the commonly held belief of the people at this time, right? That's all accurate. So the point is that what Jesus was doing here with the spit was probably not perceived to be nearly as gross as the way that we read it. Right? It may have even been looked at, readily accepted as medicinally beneficial. But, but my point today is before we get bogged down by all of those details, right, because we run the risk of missing entirely what's happening here, what I think we need to see is just what we can see, and that is that what Jesus is actually doing here first and foremost, in, in all of these different actions, he is communicating to this man what he's about to do in his life in the way that a deaf mute would have been able to understand it. Right? Jesus is basically signing to this man. When he put his fingers to the man's ears, it was simply a way that Jesus could communicate to the man that he was about to touch him and heal his hearing. And then by spitting and then by touching his tongue, however it was that that all went down. But again, Jesus is communicating to the man that he is about to heal his speech, right? He's about to, to heal the dryness of his mouth. Jesus is letting this man know what it was he was about to do as he did it. And then by looking up to heaven, as Mark is careful to point out here, what Jesus was communicating there to the man is that it was the God of heaven who was about to do this healing for him. 
that this miraculous healing that was going to come into his life would be nothing less than a miraculous act of God himself. And so again, I think one of the primary things that this passage drives home to us is that when the Lord Jesus comes into our life and he heals us, he always does it in a very personal and a unique way. He always does it in just the way that we need personally. Right? So as we unex expect the unexpected from Jesus, one of the things we can expect is that Jesus touches each life in a very personal and a unique way. Right? Our healing is not necessarily a one-size-fits-all kind of a deal. Now, there are aspects of our salvation that are common to all of us. We all need forgiveness, and we all need reconciliation, and we all need restoration of that relationship that's been broken down because of sin. Those things don't change from person to person. But the way that Jesus comes, and the way that he provides that to us as he touches us personally, right? The way that he chooses to make us whole, that can look very different from person to person. We all have such a unique testimony, don't we, of how it is that the Lord broke through to us and drew us unto himself, right? Jesus has so many different ways that he heals, and he cannot be put in a box. And I think that this passage drives that truth home and does it in a pretty visual way, doesn't it? This is not likely one that you're likely to forget. When Jesus heals this man, he does it in such an unorthodox way. It's so that people, including us, won't try to force or sort of fence him in, if you will, our preconceived notions about him. Oh, you know, he always does it this way or he always does it this other way. It's almost like Jesus is saying, look, don't you dare try and limit me in any area of what I'm doing or who I am or what I am or how I do what I do. And I think that we need this kind of a clear reminder because there's such a tendency on the part of many of us, probably most of us, but there's such a, such a tendency, I think, to want to reduce everything in Christianity down to a formula. And I think as we read through the Gospels and we see Jesus doing all these different healings in different ways and in different places and under different circumstances, part of the reason that it's recorded that way for us is to prevent us ever being able to put especially this beautiful part of his ministry under some kind of a formula where we suddenly decide we're the first church of always lay your hands on the person. Or we're the denomination of spit on the ground and stick your fingers in their ears and it's going to happen for you, right? Because what happens is we just start to do these things by rote. And we start to do these things without any regard to what his will actually is. We start to do these things without any acknowledgement that it's actually his power that's performing these actual healings and that's bringing about this restoration. Because the key for us in terms of anything that Jesus in his healing ministry in our lives or how he does things in our lives or what it is he wants to do in our lives, the key for all of that is that we first need to start to seek him in prayer 
And then we need to be obedient to do exactly what it is the Holy Spirit tells us to do. Right? Doesn't the Bible exhort us in, in the book of James, if any of you lacks wisdom, check out the formula and do whatever. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. It says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So how should we approach any given situation in our lives? Well, we need to pray for wisdom on exactly how Jesus wants us to handle it at this time, in this place, for this situation. But the thing is, we don't want to do that. What we crave is formulas. And what that really is, is it's just an indication of spiritual laziness because we don't want to go through the work of prayer. We don't want to go through the hard work of intercession and drawing close to God and really trying to understand the mind of God and what it is he has for us in this situation. And we certainly do not want to wait on God in any situation. Like who's got time for that, right? Sit around and wait on the Lord? It's far easier just to flip through the scriptures and kind of systematize some sort of formula and then just do that formula, right? It doesn't require me to pray. It doesn't require me to learn how to hear the voice of the Spirit. It doesn't require me to obey Him in this situation. And here's the big problem with reducing God to, the, to a formula. And I think that's the reason why God fights against it. And that's why Jesus fights so strongly against it is that if we reduce any area of our Christian life down to just a formula at the expense of prayer and our dependence upon the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, then ultimately what we end up with is a relationship with a formula rather than a relationship with God. Just say this 10 times. Just do this and it'll happen for you. And this is the great temptation for all of us is we just want everything buttoned up so nice and easy. Now, there are principles in the word. There are promises in the word. And that is always where we start. But then added to that, there is the unique way that the Lord Jesus wants to work through those promises. Right? And he'll always do it in agreement with the principles that we find in the word. But there's that unique way that he wants to work through those even in your life this morning. And that's what we need to be seeking him for. Because that's the only way that we move forward in our Christian life. And that's the only way that we deepen our relationship with the Lord and that we really exercise that faith in the Lord. So let's let Jesus out of the box right, that we've got, I don't know what your box looks like, mine is pretty small, right, let Jesus out of that box and just allow him to work uniquely in our lives and to bring that healing to our lives, because I assure you, he wants to make us whole, and I think that is something that's so important for us to remember, right, as we expect the unexpected from Jesus, not only will he touch each life in a personal and unique way, but he wants to do that. He wants to make us whole. And I want you to look again at what is just a seemingly small kind of detail from these same verses before we move on. Just bear with me, this is gonna be worth it. Again, 
Jesus is ministering here to this man. He takes him aside from the multitude. He's got the fingers in the ears, the spit on the tongue. It says, then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephata, that is, be opened. Now, I want you to make just a special note here in that verse of the word sighed. Because I think that it is absolutely worthy of being circled both in our Bibles and most certainly in our minds. There are actually a couple different places in the Gospels where we're told that Jesus sighed. Both of them are in Mark. One is here, and the other is just next in chapter 8, which we will get to at some point unless the Lord returns first. And these are important because the Holy Spirit has chosen to include this detail, and he didn't need to include it. But there's a reason for it. God's trying to communicate something specific to us. This passage would certainly have survived fine if there was no mention of Jesus sighing. But the sigh is included because we are supposed to learn something from it. Now, all of us sigh every so often, right? And when we do, what we realize is we didn't even know we were going to do it, right? It's an involuntary thing. You don't stop and plan. You know, I think right about 11.25 this morning, I'm going to let out a big sigh, you know, because this guy just won't wrap it up, right? You don't plan that. I hope you, I think Mike probably does plan it, but the rest of you don't plan it, right? But right, a sigh, it's just something that kind of hits us. It just kind of hits us at a given moment where we hear something or we walk into the middle of something and we just kind of pull in this deep breath and we just sigh it out. And a, a sigh essentially, it's kind of an inward groan, right? It's, it's a communication of our heart about this thing that we've just found ourselves in the middle of. It's kind of a, a, a spontaneous expression of, of a caring heart when it's come into contact with something that breaks it. And I am inclined to believe that Jesus sighed here as he looked eye to eye with the plight and the pain of this man. And he just looked at what the misery of this man's life had become. Here's this man, he can't hear, he can't speak. Right? There's very little communication in or out, and so there's this isolation and this confusion that this has produced for his entire life. And Jesus thinks about the misery that's just been introduced into this one single life because of that one single great sin of Adam and Eve and their great disobedience to God way back in the Garden of Eden. And as Jesus looks and he sees and he thinks now about what the world has become and what sin has produced now in the human condition, right? In human beings generally and in each individual human life specifically, he just sighs. Jesus just sighs at the introduction of this imperfection and this fallenness that occurred in God's perfect creation because of sin. Understand, all that we are used to is sin. 
all that we've ever experienced in our consciousness in this world is that, you know, death is always approaching and that we know people die and we know people are sick and we know people are suffering with all these different things. We know we're in the condition that we're in, right? We just kind of get used to it because it's the only reality that we've ever known. Well, guess what? When Jesus came into the world, that was not the only reality that he had ever known. Jesus was there in the perfection of the Garden of Eden. He was an active part of the perfect creating of the heavens and the earth and the creation of mankind himself. He knew that when man was created by God, it was never intended that there would be a single death. There was never a single person who should have been unable to use their tongue to praise God, right? It was never intended for a single human being to be flawed in any way or to be tempted by sin the way that we are or to live only so that we could die, right? Jesus knew like no one else knows what God's original intent for mankind was. And so it's that knowledge coupled with his experience now here living as a man on this earth, face to face with the fallenness that's all around him, that produces this deep sigh within him. In Hebrews 4, it talks about Jesus. It says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. And I think that that's such a wonderful truth to realize as a Christian. Right? As we are each just navigating all of the considerable fallenness, not just around us in this world, but you know, the fallenness maybe that's in our own bodies or in our own minds or in our own hearts, to realize that when Jesus looks at each of us, he just sighs. Right? There's a compassion that's deep in his heart towards us and his heart is sensitive towards us and it's broken towards us Jesus' heart is broken over the fact that we have to deal with on a daily basis things that we were never created as human beings to even have the capacity to deal with. It was never God's intention that we deal with this stuff. And I think it's wonderful to think about that heart of compassion that Jesus has towards us. In Psalm 103, the psalmist says of God that as a father pities his children... So the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. He knows our weaknesses, right? And somehow it just helps me to know that as I'm kind of navigating all of the temptations of the world that are around us and all of the warfare that the devil throws at us, you know, again, dealing with bodies that are dying daily, right? Dealing with all the different trials and the ups and the downs and all the things that come into our lives. But it's wonderful to know at any moment that Jesus understands. He understands what we're going through. He has compassion on us because we're going through that. And to understand that the compassion that Jesus has for us is so much greater than what any other human being can possibly has for us. He looks and he understands this is a very, very difficult path that we walk as fallen human beings. And he extends this great compassion to us in the midst of it. 
And so it's all of that, I truly believe, is what the Spirit is communicating to us by just including that little word, sigh, for us. You know, it, it's easy for us just sometimes to think of this God as, a, you know, this big God who loves the whole world. And, and he is that, and he does that, and we rejoice in that. But I think the thing that we can struggle with is that he loves me personally. To really understand that he loves this individual part of this human mass personally, but he does. Because here's Jesus, right? I, I don't believe that this was Jesus looking at, you know, six billion or however many it was at the time, people in the world. It was Jesus looking at this one single anonymous overlooked human being and the needs that he had, and it produced this profoundly deep sigh in him. That's his love for this man. And it's the very same love that he has individually for each and every one of us. And I'm taking all the time that we've taken with this because I want this sigh here in verse 34 of Mark chapter 7, I want this sigh to bless you each and every time you read it for the rest of your lives. Here's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and he is sighing over the needs of this one man. And he does the very same thing in your life. He wants to bring healing. And he wants to restore wholeness. And that's just what we see him do in the next verse. Notice the next verse begins with Mark's favorite word. Right? So after Jesus has done this unconventional approach with the touching and the spitting and the looking and the sighing, all that other stuff he does to this man, it says in verse 35 that immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed. That shouldn't be a surprise, I hope, to anybody who's reading it. And he spoke plainly, it says. So the healing was immediate. It was complete. Right? It's like here Jesus commanded those closed organs to be opened and they had no choice but to heed the voice of their creator. In verse 34 there when Jesus says aphatha, it's an Aramaic word, okay, which may indicate to us that this man was a Jew right, rather than being a Gentile. But that would have been a word that probably even this man could have easily lip-read. And what I love about the word is that it's a word that means more than just be opened, because what it literally means is be completely opened, right? Because when Jesus does something to heal in our lives, he does it all the way. And here these organs which have never functioned were restored completely to perfect health in an instant. Notice it says that as soon as there was healing, it says that this mute man spoke plainly, or it's also distinctly, right? It was intelligible and it was immediately easily understood. So this man who had never spoken was now speaking plainly and distinctly. He is reproducing sounds that he has never heard. Right, sounds which take children years to take in and to develop. And again, the point is that this healing was as complete as it was miraculous, and this is what Jesus can do, right? It's what only Jesus can do with those things that are bound up in our lives as well. 
right? Those things which haven't worked for years. Maybe there's things which have never worked. Maybe there are situations and circumstances which are so completely bound up, but those can be loosed and completely opened in an instant at the command of Jesus, right? Now, I have to believe that this man had no hope that he would ever hear or that he would ever speak. No doubt he had a longing for it, but there was no hope around it. There was no expectation in him at all that he would ever experience that until Jesus, right? Until he was taken unto Jesus and taken aside by Jesus and until he looked eye to eye with Jesus and was seen by a person as Jesus did. And, was, and it was the object of the compassion of Jesus. And then all of those years of longing were immediately fulfilled. And again, God can do the very same thing in your life this morning. Some situation where you may have given up hope or there's some circumstance where the usual formula, it's just not working. But here comes Jesus onto the scene in some sort of an unorthodox way out of nowhere and starts doing stuff that just doesn't make any sense to you whatsoever and yet the result of it is immediate and it's distinct and what happens, you just want to tell everybody about it, which of course is the very next thing we see. Look at verse 36, it says, he commanded them that they should tell no one Right? He wanted to continue to minister there without the crowds. He says, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. Well, I guess so. Right? And they disobeyed, but who could blame them? Right? Look at our very final verse. It says in verse 37 that they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now we've seen this kind of a comment from Mark before, right? He describes this reaction of the people, right? They were astonished or sort of it literally struck out of their senses, right? It means to strike with panic or, or, or shock. So as they look at this power and this authority that Jesus has over even deafness and dumbness, right? And then they hear this man speaking clearly and distinctly and probably eloquently, this man who'd never ever spoken before, and they were just astonished. But then the Holy Spirit, right, Mark, adds the words beyond measure. So they were out of their senses way beyond measure. Not, like how out of your senses can you possibly be? Right? There's this forceful adverb that gets added here. It's used only here in all of the New Testament. And what it does is it just amplifies their great astonishment, which is what leads them to this great conclusion where they say what? That Jesus has done all things well. Right? So as we expect the unexpected from Jesus, right, he doesn't always take the most direct route, but he always takes the time to see every person. He touches every life in a personal and unique way. He wants to make us whole. And however it is that he chooses to do that, we can be sure that he will do all things well. And you might as well underline that one too. Right? Because that is one of my favorite descriptions of Jesus in all of the Bible, and it should be one of yours too. 
And if it's not yet, I hope that it will be by the time that we're done in 45 or 50 minutes. It's okay. No. Because I think what that phrase does is it sort of takes us all the way back to the beginning of the beginning, right? It takes us back to the book of Genesis and it echoes what was God's own assessment of his creation before the fall. Remember after he'd made all that he'd made, that very final verse of Genesis chapter one, it says, then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now how hard is it to impress God? Right, you gotta do pretty good work. But he had, he'd done good work. And so when he gets done with the creation, then he looks at it, even God was pleased with it. And even now, as we look at creation, as we look at the world and the heavens and the earth, even now, in its fallen condition, right, even it testifies to the power and the wisdom of God. You simply look at creation. You go up to Yosemite. And you can't help but see the incredible beauty and the incredible design and the incredible order. And all of it testifies to the fact that God does all things well. You think about all of these laws of nature that just seem to operate around us all day, every day. You think about the laws that operate within us, just keep us going, right, all day, every day. Right? That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 19, he says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge, and there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And again, the idea is that as we look out at creation, as fallen as it is, but when we look and we see the design all around us, it should stop us and we should say concerning the Lord that he has done all things well. And what I want us to know this morning is that what is true of his work in the initial creation is even more true of his work in our individual redemption. See, the fact that Jesus does all things well should be very, very exciting to each and every one of us as Christians. Because what the Bible declares of us, in Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are his workmanship, right? And the, and the Greek word there is poema, right? It's where we get our word for poetry or poem. And all it really means is something made. And in the context, it's something made by God himself. And there's a wonderful very respected creationist, uh, he's a scientist and a theologian, his name was Dr. Henry Morris, and he wrote this. He said that God has written two poetic masterpieces, as it were, one in the physical creation and one in the lives of men and women redeemed and saved by his grace. Both give eloquent testimony to the eternal power and Godhead of the creator-redeemer. So there are two great expressions of God's workmanship. There's the created world, and then there's the recreated, redeemed men and women in that world. 
Now, many of you are familiar with Timothy Keller, right? A brilliant Christian writer and thinker and theologian, right of our time. He actually just passed away a few days ago, earlier this week. And he wrote this on this subject. He says, do you know what it means that you are God's workmanship? He says, what is art? Art is beautiful, art is valuable, and art is an expression of the inner being of the maker, of the artist. Imagine what that means. You're beautiful, you're valuable, and you are an expression of the very inner being of the artist, the divine artist, God himself. You see, he says, when Jesus gave himself on the cross, he didn't say, I'm going to die just so you know I love you. He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to bleed for your splendor. I'm going to recreate you into something beautiful. I will turn you into something splendid and magnificent. I'm the artist, you're the art. I'm the painter, you're the canvas. I'm the sculpture, you're the mar sculptor, you're the marble. You don't look like much there in the quarry, but I can see. He says, oh, I can see, Jesus says, I'm the artist. And each and every one of us, we are his wonderful crowning achievement. We are his masterpiece. Right? Each and every one of us, we are the work of his hands and we are his project, each of us individually. We are something that he is making with his hands into exactly what he wants each of us individually to be made into. And that's so very encouraging, I think, to understand. We're talking about the very God who created the heaven and the earth. This very God we've been talking about who has such amazing attention to each and every detail of the creation, who has such power and has such wisdom and has such love. And he is the one who is now intimately engaged in fashioning your new life for his glory. And I think that that's something that should tremendously bless us each and every day when we realize it. Now, I don't know about you all, but when God got me, he got a project. <laughs> Ask my wife, right? And I mean, we're talking about a real fixer-upper kind of a project. Thoroughly broken down, completely messed up. And yet, here's the good thing about it, though, is that Jesus loves a good project. Right? The messier, the better. Because as he fixes them up, and as he starts to unravel all those things that are twisted up and messed up, he gets all the glory out of it. Because what happens is that that new life testifies to the fact that he does all things well. And, and I know that, that many of you would agree with me, but I have never ever known the Lord Jesus to make even one single mistake in my life. I've made plenty. Right? I make all of them. Right? But I can testify to the fact that he does all things well. I've never known him to make a mess of a single situation. I've never known him to do anything less for his part than what is perfect in my life and for my life. And I just think about how many times through the years I've looked at any number of di different situations, maybe like a situation that you're looking at in your life even this morning, and I've looked at that situation and I have said, I do not know how he's going to do it. I know that he will do it, 
but for the life of me, I don't know how it's going to happen, how he will possibly make anything out of this particular mess. And very often, it didn't happen in a week. It maybe didn't happen in a month. Sometimes it even took years. But there was that one morning suddenly when I woke up and this thing had happened, right? And maybe that thing had happened. And there was this other thing that had also happened. And I didn't even realize that anything was happening. But then all of a sudden, this light goes on, doesn't it? And sometimes it may not happen until we get to heaven, but sometimes it happens in this life where that light suddenly goes on and we look back and we realize that that was exactly how it all needed to happen in order for this better thing to be able to happen. That somehow, just as he promised, right, he's worked all things together for good and he has exchanged beauty for ashes, Right? He's given the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for that spirit of heaviness. And that very promise is the very life of his breath. And it's an assurance to us that there's no destructive force in our lives, even us, right, that's greater than his incredible plan to be able to redeem all of it. And so as we look back over our lives, we too start to realize he's done everything well. Sometimes he does it in a super unconventional, unexpected way. But trust, when the Bible uses the word all, what does it mean? It means all. And understand, that word all is unfailingly true only of Jesus. He's the only one that we could say that about. You could say some about me, you could say most about some of you. We can only say all about Jesus. And every single one of our lives and everyone and everything that has come into contact with us is better because of him and his involvement in our lives. So let's trust him as he works. Let's trust him that he wants to work. Trust him that he's going to work even in these unexpected unorthodox ways that he might choose to work, but let's get to that point where we actually come to expect the unexpected and where we're looking forward expectantly with great expectation to what it is that he wants to do in our lives, right? And be open to whatever it is and however it is that he wants to do it. Again, let's let Jesus out of that box, right? So he can do great things and so that we can look back and then praise him for what he's done. Because we can look back and see that indeed he has done all things well. Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for these promises that you give us in your word, Lord. These examples that you give us. That you are doing something in our lives, Lord. As unorthodox as it may seem, Lord. As little understanding as we may sometimes have over what it is you're doing, Lord, but we trust based on your past performance, Lord, we trust based on your future promise that what you're doing you will do well, Lord, because you do all things well. And so we pray that you would encourage us with that truth, Lord, and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's worship the Lord because he alone is certainly worthy of it.